Hello, welcome to True Crime Broads. This is Crystal. And Renee. And we are so happy that you're joining us tonight. We have a very special guest. His name is Chris Gates, and he works in law enforcement. And I met him at my office, my real estate office. He's actually a realtor as well, and he also does credit repair. Um, but he is on the show today to enlighten us on how evidence is handled, because I know a lot of us are following the Missy Beavers case, and we don't necessarily understand the behind the scenes work that police officers do in murder cases. Um, so uh, without further ado, we would like to welcome you, Chris, and thank you so much for coming on. If you don't mind, just kind of let us know what you do uh, for the local police department. Um, sure. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, like I said, my name is Chris Gates. Um, I work for um, local PD here in uh, North Texas in Dallas, and um, I'm in property and evidence. Um, I've been doing that for about seven years now, um, going on about 19 years total. I've worked in the jail, um, partial some crime scene. Um, I have two degrees, um, one in criminal justice, and then I have another criminalistic certificate through North Texas. So um, just been doing that for a little while. Very cool. Um, you know, it, um, when you were telling me that uh, what you do for a living and that you work in the actual evidence handling department, that has been such a big part of our conversations on true crime broads about the Missy Beavers case, because they're, you know, the Midlothian Police Department is not um, where you work, but they have been very tight-lipped about this case, about what evidence they do or don't have. Is that pretty normal for a murder case, would you say? Uh, usually it's, I mean, it, it's kind of that way for, for a lot of cases. I mean, we, we have the things and, but there's only certain things that you're allowed to give out as far as like to the media and things. And even in our narratives, whenever we write the reports, there's actually a, one of the narratives you enter and it's really just for media. So that's the only things that you're kind of being able to give out at certain times of the case, um, just for various different reasons, either whether you just don't want to have that information out. And if you're trying to track people, you're trying to do certain things, or if you're, in the process of investigating the person that you're trying to investigate or the search situations, you don't want them to know, Hey, this is what I'm doing, or this is That's in that direction that you're going just so, um, you try to keep your things, um, until you need to, to reveal them basically on what your the reasonings why you're doing those investigations. That's a really good point because if they're tracking someone, the last thing you'd want to do is tip that person off that they're being tracked. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I hadn't, that's a simple idea, but I hadn't really even thought of it that way, but that makes perfect sense. Um, uh, and also I noticed, um, we had chatted a little bit um, in writing, this is our first time to talk in person, but we had chatted a little bit about you work with E-Trace and that was something that, um, well, I guess backing up a little bit, um, on the morning of the murder of Missy Beavers, um, Midlothian police um, were called to the scene along with first responders, you know, that were EMT people. Um, but when Midlothian PD arrived, they ascertained that they did not have um, what they needed to process the crime scene. I guess that's because they're a smaller department. Um, they called in Ellis County to process mm -hmm. the crime scene. So that was why that CSI report was written by Fitzgerald, who is with Joe Fitzgerald, who is with um, Ellis County. Um, do you see that happening a lot? Is that that? Yeah, that happens a lot, especially with the smaller cities like that, just because they don't have 
either they don't have a designated person um, or some of the departments, um, some of their crime scene and some of their um, evidence ones are kind of all the same. Like I, I know Wiley just for instance, their their property tech is the same as their criminalist, uh, um, criminalist and criminalist, crime scene investigator. It's, it's kind of the same thing. It's just, they just are different wordings and some do a little bit more than others. But if you hear kind of both things, um, they're both kind of the same where I work, ours are called criminalist um, for the crime scene investigator, but technically they're, they're really the same kind of thing. It's just kind of some extra duties some may do, um, but the smaller, the smaller to the, yeah, good. You probably wouldn't need more than one person in that role because fortunately there's probably not a lot of murders in a small town like that. Right. And a lot, um, well in that, and we, we, we have two in our department and I mean, we have 150 to 200 officers in ours. I mean, we're a pretty good sized city and stuff. And we've, we've had two, we've talked about getting a third one just for the fact of it's not just that scenes that we do. We, we, as a crime scene person, we, they, we go to a lot of different calls, but then we would be going to so many that we were going to before like burglaries and, and BMBs and collecting fingerprints and stuff. But it got to where you just couldn't even do that. There was so many. Um, unfortunately that's, we've had a lot of theft and things like that in our city. So you would be processing those scenes a lot. So we've kind of trained the officers to kind of do those simple kind of tasks. Um, they're not simple in a way, but, um, they're ones that the officers can be trained to do. So it kind of takes away that we're able to do other things instead of having to use that in, in those kind of cases, we can focus more on the, the more intense kind of scenes and things that you would have to be a little bit more involved with. Perfect. Okay. That's, that's really good to know. Um, we had been wondering about that. Um, and is there, you know, is there anything that you can tell us about the type of evidence um, handling that you do? Not about a specific case, but for example, can you tell us a little about, about E-Trace? We've had a lot of confusion about that in this case. They found apparently a gun at the scene and mm -hmm. a Fitzgerald performed an E-Trace. But what was really strange to us is that they did the E-Trace on Wednesday and Missy was murdered very early on Monday morning. We were just trying to kind of understand how E-Trace works. I understand it's um, something that the ATF provides to you. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me see. Let, I'll, uh, let me tell you what I kind of do and then I'll, um, I'll go into E-Trace a little bit because it's not as glamorous as it sounds. Okay, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> perfect. With the, with the ATF and stuff. Ooh, it's ATF and stuff, but it's not as as in depth as it might seem like it is, but it is important. Um, and a lot of departments don't actually do it. Um, um, and even sometimes in certain departments, only certain people have access to it. Um, not everyone can do it in our department right now. Um, but basically what I do is I handle all the property and evidence that comes into the police department. So anything that's taken from a scene, anything that's handled for um, arrested, like drugs or phones or anything that's turned in to be held for possible related to that case, I handle all of that. Um, I don't necessarily always package it or process it. Sometimes I'll do that if I'm helping that investigator or helping certain things, but for the most part, um, the arresting officer kind of packages it, does whatever they need to do. We have packaging manuals. We have certain ways that we need it to be done and certain ways that it has to be done according to lab standards um, and sometimes you know you kind of go back and forth with certain officers just because they're like they don't understand why you make them do it a certain way but I always tell them hey I want to do it as easy as I can to make it as easy for you because I want you to be on the street and be doing what you need to do 
Um, and everything I tell you is basically per lab standards. So when it's, if it ever needs to go to lab for testing and not everything does, but if it ever does, it needs to be packaged properly from day one turned in. Um, and that helps with chain of custody and things like that. Cause once it's turned in, anytime you check it in and out or anybody touches it or opens it or anything, you have to have a log for that for courts and records and just an integrity standpoint, um, just to make sure that there's not anything that could ever come back on the police department or the process or the case that um, gives anybody a chance to get something tossed out in court. So you're always kind of, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's from the beginning to make sure everything's done at the end. Right. Um, so I kind of handle it all the way from the beginning to when it's turned into me to I hold it. Um, I take it to lab um, on lab request. <laughs> I um, pretty much keep it in wherever area it needs to go and I go to multiple labs that it does and then once the case is over or it's able to either go back or destroy it or whatever I handle the whole process of whatever it needs to do as far as the destruction of that property if it's something that we can do okay um, so it's a, I kind of handle it from yeah from start to finish that's awesome. Now, on when you actually use eTrace, what what would you say? Just just sort of a rough estimate. What's the percentage of success that you have actually tracing a weapon, a gun? Okay. So, well, let me uh, give you kind of what the breakdown of eTrace is, because it's not like anything special. All an eTrace basically is is an is a database kind of a system of an uh, the ATF is allowed to know who purchased the gun um, or who it's come back to as the last registered owner um, of the gun. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily, um, you could have bought it from day one 20 years ago, but you could have passed it on to 10 other people and we would never know that kind of information. Um, and so it always is going to usually come back to either um, a business that actually had the gun to begin with as a manufacturer and they got them all. Um, whenever they first got them and bought them from the manufacturer and sold them like right. Cabela's or something, um, right, right. or a person that was registered. Okay. Um, so it's always kind of coming back to that. And so what we use it for is just a basics of we trace, let me start. Not every police department always traces the guns. Um, and not all the, we're one of the only property and evidence techs that do it. Sometimes the investigators will do it. Um, on their cases if they get them um, depending on the department um, it just varies on the department but we as the our kind of department that we do we trace every single gun that comes in there even if it's turned in on the street um, anything that's related to any case no matter what if it walks through my door and property and evidence we trace the gun um, and it's basically just to have a record for us because we run the gun at the scene no matter what even like I said if it's found or turned in for safekeeping or actually used in a gun related charge we trace it to make sure first it's not stolen. Um, and then, um, cause all you're doing is running that just to make sure it's not stolen. So as long as that's clear, then we, we hold it for that reasoning too. And another reason kind of using it is just, it's more of also, um, because it, it doesn't always stay in a database, but it always uses it for, let's say, I, it doesn't always come back to the person that I am doing anything with, or it comes back to John Smith. Well, he may not have anything to do with what I'm doing because he was the first owner, but it'll show when was the last time anything happened with that gun as far as like when it was sold or done. And if we have 10 different traces we do and they just happen to kind of come around the same kind of 
person or business that was sold, we're like, well, that might be odd. Um, so it's just kind of a smidgen tool to be able to use um, for a tracking purpose. Um, but it, it doesn't tell us anything other than kind of that, just kind of who the registered owner is. Um, okay. But there's always, um, it usually always comes back to it. The problem was sometimes is it's basically a drop down menu box. Oh, okay. Interesting. So let's say that you have a murder case. And certain guns have multiple manufacturers and then they have manufacturers that are made in one country, but they're imported here. And so you have to enter them the exact way for it to work. Um, I know it might sound silly, but if you put it in one box wrong, it'll kind of come back and tell you, well, it'll take the trace, but it'll say, Hey, it's going to take longer because your serial number might be wrong oh. or your, your manufacturer might be, it's, you manufactured it out of Germany, but it says you imported it out of this one. So it don't, that's why we specifically, as part of our policy, we kind of have all the officers always take pictures of the guns um, for the fact of both sides of the gun, the serial numbers, close-up shots, um, because once items are turned into us, they're sealed and everything, all the packaging and everything that's sealed to us on property, no matter what it is, it comes to us. We don't open those packages um, unless in very rare occasions that we have to check it out as the investigator, you know, for a purpose, or if there's something that I have to do in property, you know, we'll check it out to one of the property people and, um, check it back in but if all possible we have them do all that at the beginning so we can verify those numbers because we're all we're all human and if you know you flip a number on accident on a serial number it can completely change what that is right. um, so we always want to make sure we do the right thing but once you enter all that um it we enter them pretty quick from whenever they come in but um it can be a day or two like like she was uh, saying on the one where it might have taken a couple days i couldn't tell you what the reason it was on what took that while but I only work Monday through Friday and I'm off holidays and weekends and no one else really does the traces except for when I check them in. So Interesting. if okay. something came in on Friday night and even if it was a murder on Friday night, they're not going to call me in to do that. So at the earliest, I wouldn't even trace that till Monday. Um, but also even when you do trace it, it's not an instantaneous thing. Um, it does come back faster if it's John Smith, we arrested and John Smith is the owner, the comebacks to him it'll come back a little bit quicker because there's really no one kind of in between for it to kind of track. Um, but if it has been someone foreign or if there um, has some different features that you put down on some of the menus and stuff, it can take a, a little bit to come back. I mean, they've, they've been weeks to come back um, anywhere from a couple days to, to weeks to get that information back, depending on how detailed information you are able to put in the actual trace and how many of the actual boxes and drop downs you can fill in. Oh, wow. Okay. That makes and sense. Then, I was picturing just, I think Renee and I have talked about this a lot. We were just picturing, you know, entering the serial number and then bam, waiting to find out whose it was. So it's not quite. No, and then some of it's even crazier is if we get the ones that don't have the serial numbers because they've been sawed off or um, different guns. And the other problem is, is, uh, you know, forgive me on the date, um, but early in the 19, I want to say 40s, late 40s, um, they didn't even trace anything really before then. So a lot of the records that we have before that, we don't, the E-Trace database doesn't really have, it doesn't really come back to anything because it'll just say, oh, it's predated this, this gun. So it could have been like 1935, a gun from 1935, not yeah. really going to come back to really anybody because we don't, the system kind of doesn't go back, it predates earlier that on the serial numbers and things. 
Wow. Okay. Renee, did, so, you, did you have a question uh, along these lines? I thought you did, maybe? Yes, I actually do. Um, whenever you're doing inventory, or whenever uh, an officer is doing inventory of mm -hmm. a, either it could be a, it doesn't matter if it's a vehicle or, you know, maybe a room, I don't know. But, but in this instance, a, a vehicle, um, would they, would you say that they always include everything or is it something where, they, like, for instance, if you want to, keep some information from the public, would you leave something out or do you know how that works? As far as like, um, what exactly do you mean as far as like how we process the car or what kind of yeah. information we're gonna tell you was found in the car or like yeah, what? Things, yeah, things that were found in the vehicle, like if there was items in the vehicle, let's say there was five items in the vehicle, but let's say you didn't want the public to know about one particular item for whatever reason, I don't know, because uh, it might hurt the case. So is it standard for them to put everything in the paperwork that they have to fill out to turn in and leave it from the public or would they, I, I'm just asking if everything would be included or is there any reason why something wouldn't be included when inventory is done? It's not necessarily when it's not included and it's not always a, an inventory of the car sometimes. Cause like when we do inventories of the cars, like we'll, we'll take, like let's say the car was going to be towed and we weren't, uh -huh. we weren't going to do anything with it. Like let's say we'll just say we arrested them on a drug charge and we'll inventory the car just so we can kind of say what was in there when the tow place takes it. So we, we have a very reputable tow place that we've used for as long as I've been with the PD, um, almost 14 years there. Um, and we've used that same one because we don't really have any problems with them break-ins and someone saying, Hey, someone stole something out of the car. Right. Um, we kind of have like a, a log that stays in there and we only take, even if it's not evidence, we don't leave, like, let's say, like a firearm, for instance, we, if it has nothing to do with the case, but you have one legally to be able to have in the car, we're not going to leave that in the car. Um, um, so we take that in and hold it for safekeeping. So, you, and you can pick it up when you get out of, when you get out of jail, um, or any kind of like identifying things or money or anything like that. But if it's just random stuff in your car, um, we'll just kind of put that on the inventory sheet. But the other stuff is not necessarily, it's logged in as far as evidence and it's yeah it's kind of wrote in a narrative and stuff i mean we don't we don't really if things are taken as far as part of a case or things like that it's usually wrote in the narrative it may not be wrote immediately that day because some things um some pds do it a little bit different but we do it on uh, our crime our crime scene um person our criminalist um we have two um but whenever they go out whoever's on call that day if it's after hours or whoever whichever one gets it on that day because they're both there during the day but if they only go out to certain calls um and then they'll process those scenes and if there's items that they need to process before it goes to the lab or things like that that we can process in our lab they kind of take those first um, and then they'll package them when they're done and give them to me but otherwise there's taking them and bring it here but either way those are kind of wrote in the narratives of yeah these are these are things that we're taking but um as far as what always gets released to the public and stuff that's kind of a pd philosophy sometimes or you know what's going on with that as far as in the policy of what's going on with that pd and always um so i can't speak for like what plano might do or what mckinney might do or what midlothian might do right. Um, cause since talking about this case, so everyone's got a little bit different policy on what they can do. That's why I'm like, you have a basic media kind of thing that we're, oh, so-and-so was arrested on this date for this crime. That's it. 
I don't technically have to give you any more than what it is. And I know it sounds silly and people want stuff and they want to know the information, but we don't technically have to give you anything. That's right. Um, That makes sense. Even like technically when you're arrested and stuff and I'm doing an investigation on you, I I don't technically have to tell you anything. I don't even have to talk to you um, if I don't need to. So I'm like, um, it's even like the person that is being charged with whatever. So like, I, I don't, even in an it gets assigned to me as an investigator. Sometimes I don't, it, it just sounds silly on it, but um, yeah, there's certain things where you just, you don't have to tell everybody on the stuff at that time. Right. Interesting. That makes sense. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> as far as the Missy Beaver's case goes, you know, the, um, I just had a question. The FBI assisted them early on. Um, and, the FBI, do they tend to stick around this long? You know, Missy was murdered four years ago and we just had the four year anniversary last week and, or a week before last. And we're just trying to kind of get a handle on, we don't really understand, you know, as outsiders looking in, how long does the FBI continue to assist? Or at this point, would they have moved on? It's been four years now. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I, don't, I know you don't know about this case specifically, but just sort of speculating, is that? Yeah, and that one's going to be very, because I, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, is it common for them to still be in touch with a police department after four years, or have they probably sort of moved on and they were just assisting more in the beginning? Um, what's kind of the norm, or is there a norm? Uh, there's not really norm. It really just goes off of that case specifically and kind of um, like every department has a little bit of a liaison kind of that you have kind of work part area that you kind of know um, as a spokesperson that you have with, with each department. Like we, we have someone that we kind of work with with the ATF and someone that we always are kind of working. Not that you can't work with any of them, but you kind of have a go kind of person that you right. have as your kind of go between and stuff. Um, but uh, it just depends on that case that's going on with it. And I, I don't do enough with, um, I mean, I, I do stuff with them and I talk to the ATF every now and then and them and the secret service, depending on what the case is and, and the FBI and, and, you know, handling what I do um, to giving it to them and certain things. But as far as like how long they stay on the case and stuff, that's, that's completely up to the investigator and things that are going on on how much they're needing them for. I, I don't, I don't do enough with that part of it to be able to answer that one for sure. Okay. Um, and what, what but it, thing, it's going to vary on the case itself. And the more, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say the more that the case is pertaining to a federal type of charge, like um, let's say this happened and it was during a, um, a bank robbery or something where it's on a federal type level, um, you're going to have a little bit more, interaction also with federal agencies um, and they may be more involved with it because that's a federal crime um, so right. they're going to be dealing even though it may be ours to kind of in our jurisdiction per se um, there we may be leading it but they're going to be um, involved with it a little bit more so that makes sense yes thank you for that and um, that makes total sense mm-hmm. and then have you known that have for the media uh for the fbi to give um advice on how the police department should be dealing with the media uh, i'm not sure on that one i don't uh 
I don't want to speculate on that part because okay. I don't, we I don't know heard, for sure on that. Okay. Yeah. That was a lot. There was a lot of speculation on that and that was why they were being tight lipped, but okay. Well, interesting. Thank um, you so much. If for they're that. leading the chart, like if, yeah, if, yeah, I know if they're kind of leading it and if they're the ones in charge, then, you know, they can, they can kind of say what they want released and what they don't. I mean, it's kind of basically their case at that point. Um, or if they decide to take over the case for any reason, then, um, yeah, they, they can kind of say what they want to do, but I mean, I, I'm not the one that is controlling whether or not someone, something is said that wasn't supposed to be said or whatever, but right, right. if the FBI is kind of in charge or the ATF or whoever, and they're like, Hey, don't do this, don't do that. Or don't say this yet. Cause we're kind of investigating this. And you know, there's, there's a reason behind that. And they, they're kind of, they're handling some leads that, Hey, they don't want this to happen here until we follow up with these leads. Right. So they're all kind of on the same page. So if you have a gun that is left behind at a murder scene and you do an e-trace on it, how, what would you say is the likelihood that you will be able to find the perpetrator from using e-trace? Is it fairly common or not very common that you can figure out who the perpetrator is by doing an e-trace on the, a gun that might be left at the scene? That's the, the likeliness of sometimes I would say if that was the case is if it actually came back to that exact person that bought it, um, that it's registered owner to. Um, so so that, that would just be, if I had to probably say no, not as much, just because you're not required to register a gun um, in your name. Um, so, I mean, you can buy it, you can sell it, you can give it to people. Um, you don't have to register it. So, um, and there's, there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, just for anything, just like, Hey, I don't, no one needs to know what I have. Um, so I could have 50 guns. You don't need to know I have 50 guns. Um, so if somebody decided one day, you're like, Oh, guns are illegal. Okay. Well, you have no idea how many I have. So you'd never know to come to my house to take them um, so yeah. until they force that. But, um, like you said, it doesn't necessarily come back to that person as a way to know that. And I mean, Hey, yeah, if it came back to him, that's great. Cause you're going to, in that kind of instance, and if it's a murder investigation and stuff, yeah, we're going to maybe see and track and talk. You're going to end up talking to the person that it comes back to, to just kind of see, Hey, who did you sell this to? Or how did you get rid of your gun? Or did you lose it? Or did you, do you know where your gun is if you lost it? And cause sometimes, I mean, everything's at your house and stuff, but if no one ever broke into your house or you knew no one did, but if something happened and you don't use certain things, you may not even know it's gone. So even though it may not be reported stolen sometimes, it's because you just don't know it's gone. Um, and then all of a sudden something happens later on. You're like, Oh man, that's stolen. Um, because there's right. been times where we've done that at the beginning, we've, we've traced a gun or we've had it and it's come back clear on an arrest. And a couple years later during the investigation or during the case, and I'm getting ready to get, go through the case process and the disposition of the case to get rid of everything, it comes back stolen. Um, and so it wasn't that it, you did anything different or wrong at the beginning. It's just things wasn't completed. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't designated that at the beginning. Um, and so things just change over time and it doesn't automatically alert in our system that just because it changes in the system that it's stolen, it doesn't tell you automatically, Hey, that's in your system. Um, so it doesn't know that until you kind of rerun the gun again, because we always rerun it right before, if it's able to get destroyed or something, then we, um, or whatever the disposition of that gun is going to be, we always rerun it again. And we always rerun it. We rerun the gun and we rerun the person that we're about to give it to, to make sure they're eligible to have the gun and that, um, nothing has come about in that time itself, um, since we've had it in our possession. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Cause things can change. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, but for it to actually come back to the person that you want it to come back to, um, is not always likely. It's just more of a analytical type of thing to help with us to see, like I said, if, if more is coming, that certain person that might've sold it and you see that happens a lot, or you see that, Hey, the last incident that happened with this gun, you can kind of see a little cluster maybe on X that you're like, Oh, this one over here. Oh, this one over here, this one over here, all within like a, you know, a mile radius or something or a half mile radius, you know, something's going on in that area that you might want to talk to some other people about. Um, but for, if it was just one random one, like this one or something that I didn't, and you just traced it in it, I didn't see who it came back to. I didn't see that in the report or anything. So I don't, I don't know who it would have come back to, but obviously um, I can tell you probably if I, I don't know their investigation on this, but if in four years, it probably didn't come back to who they thought it might've had anything to do with the case, if I had to guess. Right. And that, you know, if it's someone who knows what they're doing, they would probably not leave a traceable gun behind. That's just, you know, that right. makes sense to me. Okay, great. I think Renee, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Okay, so at what point, if you know, do police um, choose to release more information when to the public when a case has gone cold? And I realize that it's something that would be, you know, at their discretion. I, I know that all police departments do things differently because we've seen other cases in the past where, um, you know, nothing was coming up whatever evidence they had or what evidence they didn't have. Um, and so that at that point they would, you know, do like press conference and release more information. I mean, like what, is there like a certain point where like, okay, so this case we have nothing going on, let's release more information or is that typically not something they choose, you know, would rather do? Yeah, I don't, they don't really um, just, from what I've seen and what I've done, uh, seen that it's not something that there's a set timetable for that. Um, either, um, someone's called and, and wanted something on her and they felt like, Hey, okay, we've had enough people calling recently that nothing's been going on. Maybe they'll do that. Or you follow up on a lead that, you know, like this one where they were, they're just coming in from everywhere, um, since the beginning and, with the way technology and, and social media and stuff is, it's just a whole lot harder to vet, vet those basically um, than it was years ago when we didn't have all that. You just had a phone call. Right. Um, you didn't have everything that you don't know what's real and what's not. I mean, half the stuff you see online and Facebook and all that, none of that, that those stories aren't real. Right. Um, it's just some random people that are posting stuff. So you calling in and do it, you have to track that stuff. And it's just so easy to be able to send stuff in now that, it takes a while to be able to do all of those. Um, and the unfortunate part is, is even though there might be an unfortunate murder and this one is like this, you may only have one or two officers that are working that. And I know that sounds, you know, not necessarily, it might sound in, insincere in a way that you don't think that, Hey, you're putting all of your efforts into that, but you have to think as horrible as this crime may be, you don't know the 10 other crimes that, is horrible that's going on that may not be a murder but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that all these other investigators are working and i mean we only have so many investigators i'm not sure of midlothian but i'm pretty sure midlothian is way smaller than us right i know right. midlothian stuff a little bit but uh i can guarantee you they're gonna have a lot less officers sir you know in the investigations than we do and it's just sometimes when you only have one or two kind of working that if you get five thousand leads just imagine trying to work 
all of those and how long that takes sometimes. And so and that's yeah. the horrible part is they just think, why, how, why is this not happening this long? Why is this? And right. sometimes you may have to get through, I know I'm just saying 5,000, but you may have to get through 3,500 before you get to that 3,501. You're like, oh my gosh, that's, that is over there. That actually did this, this, and this, and this is going to lead us over here. Um, so it's just an unfortunate timetable thing that um, don't want to sound silly on it, but unless it's like a high name person sometimes or celebrity, which is sounds horrible. Cause I don't ever like saying that it's always seems like you don't to the public. It doesn't seem like you're getting the full um, processing or full effort on everything. When you kind of are, it's just, it's not as high profile sometimes it seems like in the media. And so right. it doesn't show up in there as it is, but you're still working just as hard. Right. Um, it, just, it just doesn't always show up every single day because sometimes you just, you don't want all that drama sometimes either because you're trying to work a case. And if you're having to do a press conference every other day to explain something where it's like, nothing's really changed in a day, but you're taking a time away from doing this by just having a press conference to say, Hey, nothing's kind of cut up if that makes sense. And I don't mean it just for this yeah. case, but just for any of them that are like that. Right. That makes total sense. And, um, you know, in Missy's case, um, it's tempting for us as the public outside looking in to say, wow, that case must be cold. But we have heard MT MPD has said, this case is an active case. That was one of the last things mm -hmm. they released. They said it's, you know, investigators are working on it. It's an active case. So they were wanting to make sure the public understood it's not a cold case. But after four years, I think it's tempting for a lot of us who are following it to sort of think it must be cold. Well, and, and um, like when I was, I was reading some stuff on it that um, the investigators change. I mean, we, we change out our investigators all the time too, just because people move and they shift around and um, some just want to go back to patrol or want to do different things. And so you, th that case doesn't follow that investigator. So, right. even though, like I said, if it's just one or two kind of working it and then all of a sudden, that person could have been working it for a year and a half and then all of a sudden they switch positions or something and then you get new it signs to a new one well those new investigators have to go back through as crazy as it sounds have to almost go back through that case to kind of update themselves and it's a different mindset so what your thought processes was on it and your analytical thinking and you're outside the box for that person, everybody's different. That's why you, you ask all these people and we, you have conferences and you have things to be able to present it because everybody's smart in their own way. But your one idea that you may have thought by having that person, you're just like, huh, I didn't think about that. Um, and it just jogs a different avenue and a, and a different path that you could go on that you wouldn't even have thought. So not that anybody else was doing it wrong. It's just, a different way of looking at it right um and so and i see that this one um it looks like it's just barely even a year and a half ago maybe a little over two years they just kind of changed their whole entire group it looks like of investigators on on the case so um yeah it's going to be active as long as uh, there's the murder case unfortunately it's always active there's no statute of limitations on murder so i mean it'll be an active case 50 years from now unfortunately if hopefully that never happens and it doesn't take that long but if nothing happens for 50 years, I mean, that's still an active case and they find a person that day or knew of something, they could still charge that person 50 years from now. Right. Um, so uh, it just, it's just an unfortunate kind of process on how long it takes sometimes on these. Um, and that one's just a different one just because that's not normal 
processes on what was going on there. And then with, you know, the quality of the video and the quality of things that it's even, yeah, it's only four years ago, but just how much different the quality of technology has changed in four years of imagine what that video would have looked like today. If it happened today, I mean, it would have been crystal clear almost probably today on what people have um, and just being able to see stuff. So it's just so hard on some of those things to analyze those, those videos and see stuff. And, just like what's in this hand what's there why are they there and um did it really have anything to do with someone knowing her and stuff so it's just so many different little avenues and you're unsure um that it it takes a while to be able to track down each of those thought processes i'm so glad you said something about technology changing because they apparently had some partial dna and mixed dna that the lab mm -hmm. came back and said was just not sufficient um mm -hmm. You know, my hope, of course, you hear about this all the time in the news about how the DNA technology improved and now they can either prosecute or exonerate someone based on that. So, um, you know, I guess that's one thing in this case we can look forward to is hopefully, uh, I assume that lab hangs on to the sample and then maybe one day um, they'll have a new process, a new technology that will allow them to use that DNA in this case. Yeah, and that's the other part, too, when you're taking, um, as a crime scene person or anyone that collects the evidence, um, there's, and I'm nowhere near trying to say anybody did anything wrong or anything like that, but sometimes whenever you get insufficient samples, it's just sometimes it's, it could be to the fact of just how it slightly was done. Like if you, I mean, whenever we're doing samples, they're on Q-tips, um, and how they test those kind of things at the lab is, you know, they're minuscule ways that they cut those things off. But if you hold the Q-tip at certain ways and you, cause we try to train them, Hey, hold it at a certain way. So you get the maximum amount of stuff on it. Um, so whenever they're slicing these or cutting them at labs and stuff, um, it's kind of a thought process of, we may not do that at, because we may not do that testing, but I always tell everybody um, you do it this way at the beginning, because it's going to affect same thing when I'm telling the investigators to collect when, how they collect it. If you collect it this way, there's a rhyme and a reason for it because it helps the investigator. And then it helps whenever we send it to lab because like that, you have to have so much of that piece of the DNA for it to even register because if, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm not as up into DNA. So my science is going to be a little off, but no, how many chromosomes and however many things you need, I know there's 26 chromosomes, but I don't know exactly how many different things of that you need for a DNA profile. So, I mean, if it may look great and you may have it on there, but it may only have half that you need just because of the sample was there. And once you use that sample and they cut it, like if it's only got a little bit on there and they use that one sample up, there's no more. They'll have whatever uh, like partial that they were allowed to do and was able to come from, but they use up that sample. Um, so you don't really get any more. Like we'll still have the Q-tip, you get the item back, but it's like there's no usable sample left on it. Um, so yeah, if we got another sample in the future on this one and they were able to have a little bit more and it does it, it can cross-reference with that little bit they had, but there wasn't enough on there to get a whole full DNA sample um, and to be able to put it in CODIS, um, which is a, do you know, have y'all heard of CODIS or know what that is? No. I have, but I was, okay. I've been to criminal justice. That's the only reason I know. Okay, so basically it's just the database of like um, like DNA profiles and things like that. So if there's um, steps and 
it's done by the lab and we don't enter it. Um, we don't have access to it. It's pretty much the FBI and, and the lab itself is the one that enters that. But there's criteria that it has to meet so much criteria when they test the samples and anything like it's a, a SANE kit or a, you know, a DNA sample like this, a little piece of blood or anything that's on it that has DNA, whatever it may be, it has to, once they test it, it has to have so much stuff on category wise and criteria for them to be able to have enough to enter it into CODIS. And if they don't have enough on there, they can't even put it in the system um, because there's not enough of the profile. Uh, to even try to match it with someone or put it in there for later dates. So it's just kind of a, an unfortunate like little bit of sample that you have, but there's not enough on there to be able to put it fully in the system. Okay. So, wow. I didn't realize that they use up all the, the, the sample. So um... yeah, because it's, it's just the, it's kind of like the, it's chemicals and things like that, that you use to be able to break it down. Um, and so it's kind of a weird thought scientific process, but I mean, it's, how they break it down it's a chemical process not necessarily like burning or things like that but it's it's mm -hmm. a chemical breakdown of the of what they're using at the lab and so when it does that it kind of eats up that sample so that's why like i said sense. if there's enough on there they do little bit and if there is enough sometimes you know hey well i don't okay well i don't i want that another lab to test it or something too well okay if there's enough sample then you can do that um but if not then yeah it just unfortunately it uses up that sample so Wow. Um, we, we always, if there's a possibility, we try to make multiple samples, um, kind of like ours. Uh, they kind of come in a, a group of like two on some of the samples, like two sticks. Um, so you try to like do multiple ones if you can, just so you can have, you're kind of sending them to lab, but they have multiple ones to be able to, to test. So you can kind of test one and you kind of have one left over, but sometimes there's just not even enough on both of them. Cause they're just, there wasn't enough when you were collecting it. Okay. Um, and it's no fault of anyone collecting it or anything like that. It's just, unfortunately there wasn't enough there. And that one, that one's just going to be tough because on this situation, I mean, they were dressed in all of that gear. Um, and right. you, you would think that there's, there's transfer DNA no matter what, because it's you, you go into a scene or you leave a scene. You're you're leaving something there, you're taking something away. It's just the thought process, it's always there. Whether it's a you know, you're walking down there and you're taking dirt in and you're coming back out with something inside, it's whatever it may be. Right. Um, but when you're dressed in everything and you got gloves on and you've got all that, the only DNA may be the person, unfortunately on this one, it may just be Missy's right. that you could have. And that's not obviously there's hers there but if there's not enough really to go on that's really much that's about it um because obviously that it didn't seem like there was any kind of like not enough from what was left over from that one so there must not have been yeah they had said enough they had... injuries or anything on that person's part like I said girl or guy I no one can tell right now and there's discrepancies on which one it is and um <laughs> you don't know whether it's guy or girl on this one but um there wasn't enough of anything left over from that, even though they looked like they were breaking glass and breaking things like that. But if I'm decked out in gloves and I'm decked out in SWAT gear, a broken okay. glass probably isn't going to affect me. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's just a really a bizarre case. And we've been trying to sort of try to make sense of it as time wore on. None of us that followed this case initially thought that we'd still be discussing it as an unsolved murder four years later. So I think that's what sort of made us become interested and want to start a podcast because we do know there's a huge following for this case and it's just, it's fascinating and frustrating at the same time. There's just been so little information that we can go on and we don't know 
how close they are to arresting someone. I hope that one day we just look up and there's an arrest, you know, and it happens soon, but we've been waiting for that for a long time. So we don't know, but that's really interesting about, they said they had partial DNA and mixed DNA. And I often wondered, we've often discussed this, um, Renee and I, does that, is that mixed DNA potentially, I mean, it's a church where just the day before was Sunday. This was early right. in the morning. I mean, there's probably all kinds of DNA in there, right? From exactly. Um, and it's the same kind of we, whenever something gets turned into me, um, if it needs to be fingerprinted or things like that, like, I mean, I'll just make it simple, like a computer or something. Someone was typing on, they were doing something. We're like, oh yeah, we, we need to make sure who was on that. Um, right. And so right. when we're getting it at the scene, well, if you turn it into me and um, you don't always tell me, um, hey, that needs to be fingerprinted or something because of how you turned it in. I, I may just touch it like normal. I don't always, um, you're, you're not always having, if it's coming in a bag, coming in certain ways or a bicycle or something like that, I don't put a glove on always to roll a bicycle. Right. Um, just from here to there. But if you're like, Hey, that needs to, that we, that was a, a BMV and someone jumped off that bike cause they tried to break into that car. Oh, we want, want to fingerprint that. Oh, okay. Well you kind of let me know ahead of time and I'll make sure I have the gloves on and touch it. Cause otherwise my prints are on there. Not that I did anything wrong or I'm afraid if my prints come back to on a bicycle, but yeah, like that one, who knows how many was on doorknobs and how many was on touch and stuff like that. So you're kind of betting all the people that might've been in that church right? Um, that had to do it. So yeah, that's just kind of what that means is there's just a mixture of DNA that it, it just had, that or so many profiles that it was just for whatever the reason might be that it was just a combination of different things that happened at that part. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I, I would have to assume this was a fairly sophisticated perpetrator to be able to uh, perpetrate this horrific murder. Um, by all accounts, it was brutal. And then yep. um, be able to slip back into society and not really tip anyone off and not leave anything behind that's traceable. You know, that and just, you know, just the, the mindset of that person. Cause it, I know y'all were, I'm not, and I don't mean to get in at all of that on it, but I know just the, um, I heard y'all talk about some on your other stuff uh, about like, you know, blood spatter and, and different ways on that and how you track that and how um, it's just where it is. And it's, the angles of how that all is and like I said, I'm not trying to get technical but you can kind of do that from an analytical standpoint and do almost how vicious some things are because how and the tracking of where it is and how it comes can almost be we'll use this one in part because it had a hammer and stuff well if you have blood spatter way behind you man you're drawing that hammer way behind you and coming down with a force versus hey it's just a half a foot in front of you so it may have just been oh you just little just did a little bit or something. Right. Um, so just the severity and how intense that someone used the force on things and, and just the different ways of doing it can say someone like so whether they knew the person and like I said, there's no way to know that right now. And I don't know that right now, but right. whether they knew her or not, or your thought processes on that person, because obviously even if they didn't know her, something's not right with that person. Most people right. don't drive around in tactical gear. Regardless of whether you have it or not, you don't just drive around in tactical gear. Even if you love to hunt and love guns and love stuff, most people don't have tactical gear at their house. Right. Um, so just that. And I mean, the nonchalant of just walking through there, obviously they were trying to burglarize the place. So I don't know if necessarily they were, you can look at it two ways. They were trying to burglarize it and they surprised her. Um, and that was, weren't expecting anybody there because it was five o'clock or 
like I said, someone might've known her and they were just waiting on her mm-hmm. and just roam around. That's why they yep. were nonchalant. Cause they knew she might be there or whatever. And just pretending to break into stuff. So it looked like a burglary. Right. Um, but cause it most of the time you're usually not trying to be all just lackadaisical if that's the right word on it mm-hmm. um where you're just nonchalant you just go over here i look in this door yeah. oh, i look in this door oh, looks like cool. a, yeah it looks like <laughs> a walk in the park you know yeah and that's what i mean it, so yeah but that could be the thought process on some of those if you go back and you watch certain shows and you want and i'm not trying to say it's some serial killer or something but some of the thoughts on some of those people that are like that they just they just don't have a thought like that it just doesn't even think different for them um and it's we say it all the time and I've said it forever, just dealing with different people. And you see different stuff. You're like, man, I don't, I don't understand how that happened or how you could do that. And I'm like, you don't understand it because your thought doesn't work like that. Yeah. There's no way to, there's no way to comprehend it in your head because I don't comprehend going and beating somebody with a hammer. Um, I just never thought about doing that. It's just never registered in my head. So I don't think about it. You're just like, yeah, it's horrendous and stuff. But I'm like, how can your thought process be that way? And I'm like, there's no way to know that. Um, you just, you just don't, I mean, yes, there's, there's, um, psychologists and things that, that have their ways of breaking that down and you, and you have ways of, um, making basically a profile of people and how to do that. And obviously that, that does work, but the actual thought process, you, you really don't know that unless you're asking that specific person sometimes. Um, so it's just, it's hard to do that. And then sometimes in doing our jobs and stuff and seeing the stuff you see, you, as dehumanizing as it is, you have to make it that way just to be able to not kind of whack yourself out of like, how in the world does this happen with different stuff every day or the things that you could see? And just like I said, there's no way to know why they did or how they did it, but it's just, you got to be like, it's just a job. Um, and yeah. it's a process. You got to do the same process. You got to do this, this, and this. And because if you start, and there's no way to not make it human on certain things, but that sometimes can trip you up if, you know, um, and kind of mess with your thought processes a little bit. So you got to kind of keep it analytical, keep it the way that it needs to be as hard as that is. Yeah. Not to feel too personal about it. I'm sure that's tough to separate yourself from, especially in a murder mm-hmm. case. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this perpetrator came there in the middle, not, you know, you mentioned Chris that the perpetrator had on tactical gear, which is unusual, but also it was the middle of the night and it was pouring down rain. Yeah, you know, it's just that's like I mean. wow. You wear some tactical really gear at five o'clock in the morning or four <laughs> something because obviously he was there earlier. But yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I have to get up at four in the morning to go to work. I don't particularly want to get out in tactical gear at four in the morning. Um, yeah, I'm with not pouring to make down light of the situation by any means. Um, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's just sure. that's a different thought process. Like I said, there's a there's just two ways in my mind of looking at that is if you, you had a purpose, you were doing that, or you are just a crazy person and you're just like, eh, I think I'm going to do that today. And I know it sounds silly to be, Hey, why, how can it be that extreme? And I'm like, I really, that would, that's just my personal opinion is I just think sometimes it can be that extreme. It doesn't have to have a, a middle ground on there. It can be like, no, it's just a crazy person um, that just wants to do that. Or that person had a, a rhyme and reason and, and knew or wanted to do that. And that just made it look crazy. But like I don't and maybe that was hey if I dress up in all this they don't have any way of knowing there's no way to know that it was anybody um because you're not going to see anything on me 
Um, and it was barely even hard to, they barely were able to even tell that it was like a Caucasian person just being able to see that. But you were even hard to tell some of that just by the video and stuff. Right. Um, for the most part, it was just, you would have no, like I said, we don't even know if it's a guy or a girl. Um, and that sounds silly in itself, but you're like, how do you not know that? And I'm like, you just don't, they're, they're dressed in gear. Yeah. Covered. Covered. <laughs> so that was their point. Yep. But the thought of mine also is that they just, the matters of what was left and how you didn't like try to grab different things or take phones, take keys, take whatever. It was just like, just kind of almost like, eh, did whatever you need to do and walked off. I don't know if that's the case, but I'm just like from the stuff I was reading that was still on the car, still the phones, how the doors were there. I was just like, eh. Yeah. And um, Rand, no Missy, thought. Missy's husband pointed out early on that, you know, if that was a burglary or a robbery, I mean, it would have been easy to slip her wedding ring off of her finger, but her wedding ring was still on, you know? Right. So. That's where, like I said, it's just my personal opinion. That's why I don't know if that person, well, if you were trying to, if you knew, if you knew her and you were trying to do something with her, but you wanted it to look like a burglary, you would have done those kind of thing like took her phone took the things even though you can track the phone so if your thought process and you're smart enough obviously it's probably a pretty halfway smart person um even though they might be a crazy person usually for the um if you look at the histories and stuff those are extremely smart people um it's just their thought processes are just different but they you know hey i i don't i don't even know how to describe how it would be like that but um, sometimes you just don't think that way. It's just like, Oh no, I don't need that. It's just, yeah. but I, I would think if you were going to try to make it more of a burglary and stuff, yes, you're doing all that. You're breaking stuff in there and yes, you would take the stuff and it just, just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And you were doing right. that, but yeah, you're going to take all that stuff. And I was just the thought that it didn't take any of that was just a little odd to me. That is really odd. You make a good point. You would think they would want to just to make it look like a, it was a robbery and that it was more mm. random. Well, Chris, we really enjoyed having you on. Would you tell us a little bit about your new uh, things that you're working on in addition to law enforcement? You've been doing some credit repair services. Uh, yes, it's uh, basically, uh, it's just a, a, a business that uh, gets you kind of in your process of uh, cleaning up things. And it's a process that I work with and it's called FES Services. Um, and it basically is, uh, it's, it's a whole product uh, that, it's got like credit attorneys, um, credit building, credit restoration, um, budgeting. It's not just credit fixing your credit. It's kind of a financial planning. Um, and so, and I kind of went into that one also because I do the real estate and I'm realtor, um, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so I thought, man, there's a lot of times people are trying to do and buy and sell house and buy houses that a lot of people need credit help to be able to do it and, and help with their interest rates, help with things like that. So I thought, well, this is another kind of, in a law enforcement way tool for your tool belt um, awesome. to be able to kind of to help the people there. So if you can kind of help them there, it's another avenue to, to keep in contact with them through the whole processes and know that, Hey, I'm not, I'm not just, it's not just about numbers. It's not about commissions. It's not about things. We're there to help you. So if I, it looks like, you know, you're trying to make that point early that that's why I, I kind of have always liked the idea of the real estate and things like that is uh, I've always, my, my dad's a, a retired fireman and um, I'm, been in the law enforcement that you're just kind of always wanting to try to help people. So whatever the reason is, whether it's helping people because something happened to them or you're just trying to help them be better that way or get them in these kind of situations. So 
Well, I'm definitely going to keep your phone Sounds number. Sounds good. I, I work in real estate too, and I know that I've needed, my clients have needed something like this in the past. So that's really good to know. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Did you want to leave your phone number here in case someone wanted to contact you? Um, sure. Um, it's uh, 469-525-8298. And then um, my email is cgates uh, at, at opengatesrealestategroup. Um, or opengatesreg.com. Um, uh, and then my credit repair one is uh, it's, it's same email, but um, the website for that one is um, opengatescreditrepair.com. Um, Trying to make it simple. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. It was That's great. Awesome. We really appreciated your expertise. We really sure, did. No thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Again someday. Thank you so much. All Have right. a great evening. Bye bye. You too. Bye. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.